0: Listener production. Kylie Moore Gilbert's story is as absurd as it is harrowing. In August 2018, the Australian academic flew to Iran to attend a university seminar. She wouldn't return home to Australia for two years.
1: They blindfolded me, put me in a car, and, and sent me to Evin prison in the north of Tehran, and threw me in solitary confinement. I really grasp that I was in deep, deep trouble.
2: She spent 804 days in an Iranian prison under a range of trumped-up charges.
1: It's a fight between yourself and your own mind to stay sane, to stop just breaking apart and, you know, screaming and beating yourself against the walls.
0: Yeah, her incredible story is coming up in just a bit. But first, as always, the headline for today, Friday, April 1st. Happy April Fool's Day to you, Tom Tilly. We're starting with the Ukrainian president who has addressed Australia, Australian Parliament and urged our country to help fight alongside his against Russia.
2: Whatever is happening in our region because of the Russian aggression, what is destroying the lives of people has become a real threat to your country and to your people as well. Because this is the nature of the evil. It can instantly cross any distance. So he was suggesting um, he didn't mention China, but he was essentially saying we could face similar kind of threats in our own region. He pleaded with Australia to impose new sanctions on Russia as well as um, he singled out the Bushmaster armoured vehicles that we have, that he'd like to have some more of those. So he asked for some of those and he got a very warm reception in Parliament. We welcome you, Mr. President, as a lion of democracy.
0: Yeah, that was how our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, described Zelensky. And this is how he described Vladimir Putin. We do not stand with the war criminal of Moscow.
2: Yeah, so Zelensky really knows how to win over support, don't you think? I mean... I thought he might be too busy fighting a war to get on a video call with a middle power, but in a short space of time, he got Scott Morrison to call Vladimir Putin a war criminal and call him a lion of democracy, and get $25 in more um, military support. So it wasn't a waste of time at all.
0: You know, we often hear world leaders in times like this talk about not just the battle that's going on on the ground, but the battle for hearts and minds. And I think Zelensky's really, he's really got that one in the bag over someone like Vladimir Putin. I remember seeing a friend of mine post a meme randomly on social media that said, morning routine, wake up, check on Zelensky, coffee <laughs> and i thought i had never seen a world leader who let's face it we probably didn't know his name a few months ago if he'd asked an average australian who's the president of ukraine they wouldn't have known and now he's suddenly become part of their morning routine and they just want to check on him and make sure that he's okay i mean i know that it's a meme but it does signify that you know he does have a lot of support from people around the world including here in australia
2: And the opposition leader has given the all-important budget reply speech. And one of his key focuses, Anthony Albanese, was on fixing
0: aged care. If you want to change aged care in this country for the better, then we need to start by changing the government. If Labor is elected, uh, they've got a $2.5 billion plan that will go towards having round-the-clock nurses uh, for homes as well as better food and also higher pay for workers as well.
2: Yeah, and apart from aged care, Albanese highlighted five key areas Labor would focus on if they were in government, um, investment and jobs in cheap renewable energy, more manufacturing in Australia, more investment in infrastructure, more opportunities in training and cheaper childcare. And they also promised no pushback on the government's cost of living relief package.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to hear Anthony Albanese say my agenda isn't radical, that he was promising renewal, not revolution. I think we've been through so much upheaval in the last two years. I think he might not really want to add to that by saying, hey, we're going to do all of the things that the government didn't do. They really cocked up aged care. We're going to fix it. We're going to look at ending the climate wars. We're going to adopt the recommendations of the Respect at Work report um, on the treatment of women, which has really been plaguing the coalition. We're going to create a federal ICAC or an anti-corruption commission body, again, which the coalition has sort of been dilly-dallying on. So it seems like we're not going to change too much, but we're going to move forward in a direction that the coalition hasn't.
2: Well, the critics on the other side of the chamber say they were just broad policy statements and it was absolutely lacking in any economic detail.
0: Yeah, well, there is. I mean, he did say that he believes in higher wages, but there was no concrete plan to raise Mm. wages except for the aged care sector. So there is that.
2: And the death toll in the floods has risen again. The body of a 55-year-old woman has been found in floodwaters in North Lismore. Um, Alina Brackle, an aged care worker from Nowra, um, was reported missing there on Tuesday night.
0: Yeah, flooding has now impacted more than 30,000 people across New South Wales. This is from Tweed Heads to Coffs Harbour. There is some good news, some relief. Rainfall is easing and threatening floodwaters continue to recede.
2: Yeah, still anger though that the authorities gave evacuation orders, then lifted them then had to bring them back in again on Wednesday night in Lismore.
1: At that point in time, it is still my belief that
0: that call was the right call to make. That was the New South Wales SES Deputy Commissioner Daniel Austin there defending um, the organisation's decision. Of course, the clean-up continues. Residents are now facing another major clean-up. There's many locals deciding whether to pack up and potentially move their lives for good. It can be a very Flood prone area in that region. I certainly would suspect nobody wants this to happen again.
2: And an Aussie journalist will remain behind bars after a Beijing court deferred its verdict on her espionage trial. Chang Lei was a news anchor with China's state broadcaster CGTN until she was detained in August 2020.
0: Yeah, so yesterday she was tried for illegally supplying state secrets overseas. Um, it was a closed-door trial. It was very secretive. Uh, it lasted less than a day. This is deeply uh, concerning, unsatisfactory and regrettable. We can have no confidence in the validity of a process uh, which is
2: conducted in secret. So that's the Australian ambassador in Beijing, Graeme Fletcher, outside the courtroom, um, speaking quite candidly there for an ambassador. He and other foreign diplomats and journalists weren't allowed into the trial, so we know very little about what it decided.
0: Yeah, and we also know very little about where it can go. I mean, if convicted, um, she faces a sentence of five to ten years, It could be more, it could be less. We know that she's already served 19 months and she does have two children around 10 and 12. So a really, really intense, sad story.
2: Yeah, it is a really sad story and it has some parallels to the Kylie Moore Gilbert story you're about to hear. We've got a a legal process in a country that has no transparency around those processes. Also a bit like Iran, China's quite paranoid about foreign spies and we've got a... An Australian woman locked up with no end in sight and her devastated family hoping the government's doing everything in its power. So, yeah, a very interesting parallel. After this message, we're going to get into our interview with Kylie Moore Gilbert. The backstory is that she went to Iran for an academic seminar in August 2018 and then three weeks later when she tried to leave at Tehran Airport, she was arrested.
0: Yeah, she has told the whole story in her book, The Uncaged Sky, And her amazing story is coming up right after this. Kylie Moore Gilbert, the Australian academic who spent more than 800 days in an Iranian prison, joins us now. Kylie, thank
2: you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about the moment where you realised you weren't going home.
1: My brain just wouldn't absorb it. I couldn't believe it. It was all just too surreal. And, you know, because I hadn't done anything wrong, I just thought it's a colossal misunderstanding. They're going to, you know, figure out that they've got the wrong person or that I'm innocent and let me go. So I wasn't initially thrown in prison. I was taken to a hotel after my arrest at the airport and interrogated there and not allowed to leave the hotel for a week. So during that week, I... I honestly believed the lies they were telling me that if I answered all of their questions, they'd let me go and I'd be able to go home. It was only when following them they blindfolded me, put me in a car and and sent me to Evin Prison in the north of Tehran and threw me in solitary confinement that I really grasped that I was in deep, deep trouble and the likelihood of me going home anytime soon was slim.
0: So, Kylie, you talk about ending up in Evin Prison Just before we get to that, what was it exactly that they were holding you on? What were they telling you you had done wrong? Or what were they trying to get out of you when they stopped you at the airport?
1: I don't actually think they knew for sure at that point. They certainly hadn't decided what they were going to charge me with. They decided I was suspicious. They wanted to interrogate me, but they hadn't yet figured out exactly why, I think. They were just kind of on a fishing expedition, digging for information, and particularly once they got into my emails, and I resisted giving them my email passwords at the beginning, but I really didn't have a choice because they said to me, if you want to go home, you have to cooperate with us, and unless you give your passwords, you're not cooperating. Therefore, things will get very bad for you, and and in the end, I did. And um, then they kind of used my emails and information that they'd got from me in interrogation to flesh out, it's called Parvandesazi in Persian, some sort of fake concocted narrative of what I was up to, you know, in Iran, which they then presented to the court when they charged me.
2: So was that always with a view just to try and extract value for you in some kind of exchange? Or was there a different reason? Because eventually they pieced together a narrative that you were somehow involved with Israeli intelligence through your husband, who was a Russian-Israeli, how did that all piece together from their point of view? What was their motive right from the start, do you think?
1: I don't think they're that sophisticated. They're quite amateurish. They're kind of making stuff up ad hoc on the fly as they go along. They know, because this is an established practice in Iran, unfortunately, going back even 40 years to the US embassy crisis of 1979, they know that when they take foreigners hostage, they arrest foreigners they can get something of value in exchange for them so it's a win-win situation if i'm a spy great they can interrogate me and get all my intelligence and maybe i don't know flip me to be a spy for them if i'm not a spy doesn't matter it's still great they can in the end charge me with something bogus and then get concessions from western governments in exchange i think they knew okay maximum we've arrested an innocent person and we'll just extort the British or the Australian government because I'm a dual citizen for something in, in the future for her. Mm. It was a farce. I mean, they knew I wasn't a spy. The whole thing was actually quite hilarious, especially the court process, total kangaroo court. It was a process they had to go through. They had to charge me with something in order to get those concessions from the Australian government.
0: Kylie, I'm, I'm glad that you can kind of look at this now two years later and, you know, see the almost absurd side of it. But, of course, when you were in it, in the throes of it. It was an incredibly torturous experience for you. You ended up at Evan Prison. It has a reputation for being a particularly brutal place. What was that like for you, particularly as someone who didn't speak the language and who had limited connections in
1: Iran? It was terrifying. I was so bewildered. I had no idea where I was, who had arrested me, and not really much of an idea as to why at that time when I first entered Evan. I'd heard of Evin Prison. It's sort of a notorious place, especially for torture of political dissidents during the Shah period in Iran before the revolution. So I'd certainly heard of it, but Evin is just sort of a byword for torture in Iran. Mm. So I would have actually really been terrified that that's what they were going to do to me. And they did. They'd psychologically tortured me. I was beaten up a couple of times, but there was no pulling your fingernails or electric shocks or anything like that. But certainly I would have expected that, and I was worried about that when I was first thrown in there.
2: Well, one of the biggest forms of psychological torture is solitary confinement, and you endured some of that, and we hear about that a lot in the news. Can you actually explain what that's like and why it can drive you insane so quickly?
1: It's hell. I mean, I don't even know if there's a word in English language to describe it adequately. Actually, when I was there, I would have preferred to be physically tortured than be in solitary because you are torturing yourself, which is a hell of a lot worse than someone else doing it to you because there's a whole lot of layers of psychological blame and guilt and rumination going on as well. Your brain becomes your own worst enemy. You know, it's a fight between yourself and your own mind to stay sane, to stop just breaking apart and you know, screaming and beating yourself against the walls. I mean, the the sensory deprivation, the lack of any human contact, the lack of any control whatsoever over every facet of your life down to whether or not you use the toilet, you know, and going from someone who's intellectually curious and, you know, engaged in life and social and then being thrown into this two by two metre box with no natural light, no window, lights on 24 hours a day, zero furniture, no bedding, just a couple of scratchy, dirty old blankets, absolutely nothing to do for 23 hours a day inside your own head, trying to entertain your brain. But your brain going from a regular life to zero stimulation overnight, it just can't cope. Mm. And you really do start to go insane. And it was really terrible. And you hear other prisoners, you know, in other cells who are just screaming and beating themselves against the doors of the cells and, you know, hearing those noises also, they're, they're, they're being tortured in there, even though they're there alone and nobody else is doing it to them. The isolation and the sensory deprivation is is what's torturing them.
0: Mm. Kylie, while all of this was happening right from the start, you were telling your husband, well, your ex-husband now and, and your family to go public with this and tell Australia about your story. They said no, that they were being told not to. The government was kind of conducting this strategy of quiet diplomacy, and you stuck to that for a year. In hindsight, do you wish that you had gone or you had been able to go public sooner?
1: I know it depends on a case-by-case basis, and the diplomats, you know, they have a really difficult job to figure out what to do. But in Iran, at least, my sense is that it doesn't really hurt, but it can only help having some sort of public pressure both within Iran but also on the Australian government itself to prioritise my case, to do everything it can, you know, not just go through the motions of making diplomatic representations to the foreign ministry or something. In my case, I do believe that media attention had a positive impact and about a year after my arrest, it did become public knowledge and I did notice an improvement in my prison conditions, including access to medical treatment I was able to judge after a few months that I'm not going to get punished. Bad things aren't going to happen to me if the Australian media or or international media reports on my condition. I don't think it's logical to assume that I'm going to suffer because a media outlet on the other side of the world publishes that I'm in prison. But in my case, it definitely helps to have media attention and my amazing colleagues and friends who launched a campaign publicly calling for my release in 2020 that just blows me away. And I think it really did have a big impact on pushing the government to work hard to secure my, my freedom.
2: Well, I remember when the news came out, I just couldn't believe that a young Australian female academic was stuck in a prison like that. How frustrated were you at the Australian government? And, and how do you look at it all now, knowing how it panned out? And I guess I'm interested in how much you know about the inner workings of the deal, if there was one, and, and whether you think they did enough
1: it's a really difficult question. Obviously, I don't, I'm not privy to the inner workings of DFAT and whatever diplomatic deal making was going on behind the scenes. I know a little bit about it, but actually, most of what I know was told to me by my own captors. You know, like as I said, they're amateurs, so they're not keeping things secret. You can get information out of them. So I actually learnt about the people in Thailand who this, I was exchanged for three terrorists in the end, convicted terrorists in the Thai prison from Iran. So I was learning stuff, but um, at the beginning, following my arrest, the government didn't act quickly enough. You know, it's a huge bureaucracy. By the time they grind into gear and actually get started on whatever they're doing, it's too late. So that window of opportunity was missed. You know, it took them a year or so, I think, to properly prioritise getting me home and go and talk to the right people. I had been arrested by a semi-state actor, entirely independent Of the Iranian diplomats and who didn't like the Iranian diplomats. So there was not much use Mm. just diverting all of your focus that way when these guys didn't have much power over my situation at all. So that would be my criticism. But I'd also praise the government and I want to say that I'm very grateful to them for securing my release Mm. because the deal that they pulled off was remarkable. I mean, it was a a three-way tri-national agreement, including the Thais, obviously, because these guys were in the Thai prison, the terrorists. Pulling that off would have been really complicated. They really did pull off a remarkable deal. My criticism would be the time it took them to reach that point and the dithering that happened before then, and also the fact that, in my view, DFAT should embrace media coverage, not all of it, but they should mm. seek to use it as another tool and the toolbox for securing someone's release and not just view it as some sort of evil that should be kept in the box at all costs, because in the 21st century, diplomacy should be able to use these tools as well, in my view.
0: What was that moment like for you, Kylie, after 800 days in prison going through this torturous ordeal, that moment where you walked out of the prison and you knew, right, this is it, I'm free, I'm going home. What was that like for you?
1: Even when I was at the airport preparing to depart, I was in an IRGC-controlled VIP, so-called terminal, full of these guys everywhere, and I still didn't let myself believe one hundred percent that I would be freed. It was only when we were in the air and we crossed out of Iranian airspace that I allowed myself to just take a deep breath and properly try to process the fact that they've pulled it off and I'm I'm free now. Because there've been so many dashed hopes before, I didn't have that sort of moment of ecstasy rocking out the prison gates because I was still in the custody of my captors and they were so shifty that anything could have happened to derail it.
2: So the heartbreaking part of this story, apart from the whole story, was that your former husband, because of his Israeli connection, was part of the reason you were charged, had ended up hooking up with someone else, your PhD supervisor and friend. When did you learn about that and how did you deal with that?
1: I didn't learn about it when I was in, in Iran. I don't talk about it in my book, really. You know, my husband's mentioned there, obviously, because he was part of the story, especially at the beginning. But I come to understand my marriage It essentially ended whilst I was still in Iran. I was disappointed with his lack of support. And whilst that aspect was a surprise, the fact that my marriage was over and I'd probably be getting divorced wasn't necessarily a surprise for me. Kylie,
0: you're back in Australia. You've been back here for some time, but this ordeal is not over for you. There is still potentially a security risk to you. You've now written this book and you're very open about your story. Do you think that that's going to increase the security risk?
1: I've thought about that, but I'm okay with it. I think it's more important to speak up about what happened to me, use my voice to draw attention to what's still happening to thousands of other innocent people in iran today and in other countries in the world that undertake hostage diplomacy or arbitrary detention you know i'm sure they'll read the book and they'll watch some of these interviews but i'm in australia and i feel relatively safe here and as long as i think i don't go to countries that have iranian influence uh, i hope that i will remain so
2: well that was kylie moore gilbert just an incredible story and um amazing that she can tell it so calmly, Jan. Her book's called The Uncaged Sky.
0: Yeah, I wonder how she's going on her sort of book to a promo, because you sort of have to relive that nightmare over and over again when you're telling that story. I was conscious even asking her the questions of what it was like for her, I thought, oh God, I wonder, I wonder how she's feeling having to talk about it all the time. It must not be an easy thing.
2: No, she still speaks with so much passion, though, and it was really insightful hearing her explain why solitary confinement sends you crazy like we we hear that but unless you've experienced it, you wouldn't know and she gave a really graphic account there but as you say she's doing it in still such a composed powerful way which is just so impressive given what she's been through All right, the weekend briefing will be in your feed tomorrow morning. Jamila, who's on this week?
0: My guest this weekend is Rhys Nicholson. You will know him, of course, because he is an award-winning stand-up comedian. He's a writer. He's an actor. He is also a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under, a TV show that made headlines good and bad all over the country. I have to say, Reese really surprised me. I knew he was smart. I knew he was funny. But the warmth and kindness and empathy he brought to our conversation, especially talking about growing up gay in a community where he really was not accepted and his more political work pushing for marriage equality to become a reality, he really blew me away. This is one not to miss.
2: Yeah, he is a really sharp mind, Reese Nicholson, and obviously absolutely hilarious. That's in your weekend briefing. Tomorrow, we'll catch you on Monday. Have a fantastic weekend. Listener.